Today's episode is brought to you by Anonymity. It's becoming a bit of a lost art in this day and age, but it's pretty likely you at home listening to this don't actually know much about me, other than my name and the personal details I've chosen to share. You wouldn't know me if you walked by me on the street, wouldn't know me if you sat down next to me on a plane, wouldn't know me if you were victimized by my personal mafia of net criminals. Not that I have that. Absolutely not. I do highly suggest you settle in to listen to me discuss 2001's Mega Man Battle Network 2 for your continued health on this episode of What Am I Podcasting For? Hello, welcome to What Am I Podcasting For? My name's Carlisle, and this is the chronicle of my attempts to play through the entire Mega Man series, from Mega Man 1 to Mega Man 11, and as many of the 100-plus games in between as I can. And we have a lot to cover. Listen, Battle Network 2 came out the same year as the original Battle Network in Japan. It was developed that quickly and that fast, and with that much of a turnaround. And you would think that would create a smaller game that is easier to talk about, and you would be completely wrong. Battle Network 2 is a very large game. I also mentioned in previous episodes that I was going to look into doing the post-game of this game, and I am in progress doing the post-game of this game. At some point, I have to record this episode so I can start editing it and having it ready in time, and I slightly forgot how long the post-game of Battle Network 2 is, so we're just going to cover the main game of Battle Network 2 today, and then I'm going to cover the post-game alongside probably Gold Empire next month. But speaking of things taking a really long time, I need to just get into this game because there's a ton to talk about. Battle Network 2 starts off with our hero, Lan Hikari, hitting Summer Vacation, every child's favorite time. The game begins off with very, very low stakes. Despite the fact that technically we just saved the world a little bit ago, that doesn't mean we don't still have homework that we need to go home and do because Lan might have gotten poor grades because, of course he has, he's a generic shonen hero. He's too busy being hot-blooded to actually study, that's the trope, right? And so he's going to go online, do his homework program tutorial, and then get roped alongside some of his friends into going and taking some license exams on the internet to become an official net battler kind of like Chot is. And I'm just going to blitz through like what's actually happening here. The license exam is very, very simple and quick, and this is entirely basically an extended tutorial segment, but what I'm going to use this opportunity to talk about is a ton of the changes that are immediately obvious in Battle Network 2. Not every change. Some of these we're going to get into later on as we get going, but here's some of the changes you will experience in the first half hour of Battle Network 2. One, Battle movement is slightly faster and more responsive, which is really nice. There's less forced downtime between attacks. Two, you can now freely escape from battles. This is done by pressing the L button on the main menu. In the original Battle Network, the only way to escape from a fight was to have the escape chip. The escape chip does still exist in this game and can be used to guarantee an escape. Otherwise, your chance of escaping is actually based on the total amount of HP that Mega Man has. The more HP he has relative to the viruses he's fighting, the more likely you are to successfully escape. If you fail to escape, you'll just have to last a round of combat with no chips loaded. Next up, the star code. In the original Battle Network, when you were folder building, you had to keep in mind what chip codes all of your chips had. 
as you could only effectively make an active hand of matching chip codes. Battle Network 2 introduces the Star Code, which is essentially a wild card. You can treat those chips as basically being every code at once, and that's actually fantastic. It allows a lot of supportive chips, such as area steals and barriers and stuff, to have star-coded variants that can then be run with anything and still allow you to attack, which is really important. It also allows for the existence of modifier chips. There are a handful of chips in this game that give damage bonus to the preceding chips, and all of these exist in star codes. So you can use these in tandem with multi-hit chips or just as something easy to cycle through your folder with because they can work with other things. This is important because the chip folder limits are now stricter. In the original Battle Network, you were allowed 5 total Navi chips, regardless of what they were, and then 10 copies of any other chip. In Battle Network 2, you were limited to 5 copies of any single chip, still 5 total Navi chips, but you cannot run duplicate Navi chips. This drastically reduces the power of your potential folder in the long run, in some ways, because you cannot just stack up an entire folder with, like, 3 chips. However... It also actually makes a lot more chips, like, I don't know, viable or valuable. It means that if you want to double down on certain Navi chips, you have to run the weaker versions of the Navis as well. It's an interesting trade-off. It's not the last time that the system will change, either. The other major new feature added to folders is the default chip system. I will spare you the specifics, but basically... We are able to set one chip in our folder to always appear in our opening draw at the start of battle. There is like a whole new tier of upgrades that allows us to select more and more like higher power chips of this, but this allows you to do stuff like setting a barrier or an area steel chip if you want to run a sword folder and always be able to count on getting that critical chip. It's a very neat system and while it Two will be refined a little bit over the coming games, it sticks around. Also of note, that has changed things up a little bit, is that our HP no longer regenerates between battles. In the original Battle Network 1, excluding when you were running through Elecman's stage if you took too long, you always healed between every fight. This meant that the viruses had to start doing a lot of damage late game in order to threaten you, because you would probably have like 600, 700 plus HP if you'd been bothering to grind and get shop HP and everything like that, and so things had to hit really, really hard. In Battle Network 2, that's not quite the case. There's a lot more enemies that do lower amounts of damage, especially throughout the main game, and that's because of the fact that now the damage that you take sticks with you. In order to compensate for this, you are healed every time that you go offline, which is very, very nice, but also you're given what's referred to as a subchip system, essentially a classic RPG. RPG inventory. You can only use these outside of battle, but these allow you to do things like heal Mega Man back up, and also do things like temporarily reduce the encounter rate, which is really, really nice, because that works like perfectly against weak enemies. It will literally stop weak enemies from showing up. And speaking of trips around the internet, there's some big changes to the way that the internet looks and plays as well. For instance, when you play most RPGs, you expect to be able to run around and explore and find treasure chests. Battle Network 1 had these in the form of mystery datas. Some were in fixed locations with fixed rewards, and others would spawn randomly. Battle Network 2 went and actually standardized what the color on the mystery data means, a touch that is really valuable for knowing, like, oh hey, that's a blue mystery data, it's a one-time reward, that could actually be like a permanent HP upgrade or something. But the biggest thing you will probably notice when you start playing this game is that the moment that you log into the internet, it looks so much better. Listen, everything in this game actually looks better. It's still mostly the same style, but in terms of, like, 
Landside, the real world. There was a lot of rooms in Battle Network 1 that looked, they looked like they were rushed and unfinished, like they hadn't quite had a last pass by the art team to make sure that they were on the same standard as everything else. Not shoddy, just a little bit off. The visual style of Battle Network 2 is much more consistent throughout in the real world, much more detailed, a little bit more vibrant, just in general. And then when we go online, we get a drastically more detailed world. In Battle Network 1, I complained a bunch about how horrible an experience navigating the internet was. How it was all just like thin paths that crisscrossed each other, and it was 16 areas of the exact same visual style with barely any landmarks. In Battle Network 2, we have areas of the internet that have completely different visual styles from one another. Visible points of reference, interactions like teleports and conveyor belts and stuff that interestingly don't actually make navigation worse. They kind of make it better because it's easier to remember where you are. And even if you somehow forget where you are, the pause screen now actually has a little display that tells you exactly what area of the internet you're in and which numbered area you are in of it. It is an immediate and obvious and crisp improvement over the original game, and you can see, like, okay, now that they have proven the concept, already, within the same year, they are able to do so much more now that they can focus on refining and adding to that core concept. And that is basically Battle Network 2 in a nutshell. We proved the concept, now let's really nail it. Alright, so what happens in Battle Network 2? Well, our inciting incident for Battle Network 2 actually comes after we're done that initial license test. We get a call from our school friend Yai, you know, the rich one. Apparently, an air conditioner repairman was at her house earlier in the day. But actually, he might have been there to turn the air conditioner into a poison gas dispenser, and is now slowly gassing Yai to death in her bath while uh, ransoming her parents for millions and millions of dollars. We're starting off with a little bit crueler of stakes, deliberately, than just an oven on fire this time. This brings us to the first stage of the game, which is Airman stage. This stage is a little bit trickier than Fireman stage was in the original game. The puzzle of it is not necessarily as free, but it is pretty simple still. The core idea this time is that we have to dodge between moving like gusts of air that are being expelled from certain vents. If we get caught, the gusts will shove us along a path or potentially over a gap. It can be a little bit irritating, but for the most part, it's actually really easy to do successfully. The most frustrating bit is that you can get into random encounters while dodging the gusts. That is a little bit of a frustrating bit, actually. But it's all simple and full of easy enemies, so it's never that bad. Speaking of easy enemies, Airman, when we reach him at the end of it, is a super simple starter boss. Low HP, very slow movement, very straightforward attacks, largely involving attacking right in front of him. Though he does have some attacks like a very Mega Man 2-style, very slow-moving tornadoes that you have to dodge between. Recognizably Airman... 
but also like extremely simple, extremely first boss material. They will get much more interesting as we go. But once Airman's down and we've fixed the gas filtration system and Yai is no longer going to die, though God knows she should probably have been sick for a while after this, and probably so should Lan and all of his friends, and this isn't the first time I'm going to make that statement, Yai just kind of laughs off having been almost gassed to death and so does everybody else. And the first chapter wraps up with an ominous call between the culprit of the crime and his mysterious boss. Apparently, this dude was working for an organization named Gospel, who takes no prisoners and tolerates no failure, as demonstrated when it turns out the dude's briefcase is a bomb. Now, an email when we wake up the next day does mention the explosion, but does mention that it doesn't appear that anybody was hurt, so presumably the culprit was able to escape in time with his life, but, um, yeah, maybe we are dealing with a little bit more brutal of a force than we were in the previous game with World 3. This time, our opponents will be the Net Mafia Gospel, who don't really have much to do with being a mafia, honestly, that's a misnomer term. Like, here with a ransom plot, it sounds kind of like it fits, but every other crime they're going to get up to after this? No. Also, observant Mega Man fans will have already noticed, Gospel was the Japanese name of Base's dog companion. It even has kind of like a sharp, ferocious, hound muzzle type imagery as its logo. But... <laughs> We're not here to deal with gospel just yet. That's a problem for somebody else. We're in Chapter 2, and Lan wants to go camping. Or at least he wants to go camping. It turns out all of his friends are busy. Yai's out traveling around the world already, despite having just almost been gassed to death. Chod's just like, no, dude, I'm too busy for you. Go away, etc., etc. So we get put through our second mandatory license exam. This one does actually send us to some new areas. It sends us to the Net Battler Center in Marine Harbor. This basically is our replacement for the government complex in this game. We'll be here to visit Dad a couple times throughout the game. There's a couple NPCs we can duel, etc., etc. Including one of the first bosses that is more immediately difficult than Airman, Toadman. Toadman jumps between two moving lily pads on the top and bottom rows of combat whenever you get in line with him, making him fairly difficult to target. In addition, these lily pads regularly shoot out tadpoles down the line, which will likely interrupt any slower attacks you're performing. And if you wait around too long, Toadman himself will sing a tracking projectile at you that will attempt to paralyze you and deal damage and set you up either to get hit with the tadpoles or for Toadman to just dive bomb you with a punch. Compared to Mega Man 4's Toadman, who was a complete and legendary joke in difficulty, even the first fight with Toadman in Battle Network 2 can be absolutely brutal. The only thing saving this boss from being one of the nastiest in the series, in my opinion, is that he actually just has really low HP. But fighting him this early, you probably don't even have any electric attacks in order to take advantage of his weakness. He is nasty. This license exam is... Definitely a chunk of filler. It technically takes like maybe 15-20 minutes if you know what you're doing and where to go, but it still just kind of sucks having to do it, to be honest. One thing that is new, though, that we do get as we deal this is the final battle in it is a gauntlet battle. This is a series of battles directly back-to-back -back with regular enemies. Forced encounters with viruses were a very rare thing in Battle Network 1. Like, there's only a couple times in the game where you absolutely have to fight specific groups of viruses. It is much more common in Battle Network 2, and at a number of points, such as these license exams, you actually have to take on multiple back-to-back. -back. These gauntlet fights will not reward you with anything other than whatever quest objective you were trying to complete, but they serve as like little mini-boss fights, and it is kind of nice. Fortunately, these first ones are absolutely trivial. Once we do have this license, we're also introduced to the job board. 
This is basically a dedicated side quest hub. You don't have to touch any side quests right now. There's a couple that we have to do later in the game, but there is like a good dozen plus optional ones that you can take or you can just not touch. It's entirely up to you. Either way, after getting our license, Lan starts getting emails from all of his friends saying like, hey, you know what, actually I'll come along, except for Chad, who's still stubborn. We go to bed, and we wake up the next day, and we go out on a camping trip with our friends Mile and Dex and Yai, and we head out to beautiful green Okudin Valley, a popular campground right next to a large hydroelectric dam. And this is where we run into Chad for the first time, who, um, he sent us an email being like, no, I'm, I'm too busy, we're not doing this, and then shows up at the campground anyway saying, and I kid you not, I'm not here because I wanted to be with you, okay? As some of you are probably hearing that phrase and thinking, okay, so what does that have to do with anything? The rest of you are weebs who know a Sundari when you see one. That is the most archetypal dialogue for this character really is fond of this other character, but is incapable of saying it because that's their personality. But anyway... <laughs> We get into some shenanigans at the campground, including fighting off some bees with open flames. Smokey the bear would not be impressed. And also jacking into a bear. You heard me. I will not be offering further context at this time. And then we finally settle into camp and an explosion goes off at the nearby dam. Which, as somebody who lives near a hydroelectric dam, is a terrifying sentence, let me tell you. Turns out, purely by accident... We are at the site of Gospel's next attempted crime, a terrorist attack to just straight up blow up a dam and flood a lot of Electopia, the country that Lan lives in. Turns out Chad maybe wasn't just being Sundari, and while he works on disarming the bombs inside the dam, we're sent off to our next stage, which involves jacking into various objects around the campground, which are actually secretly detonators. The second stage is potentially a little bit irritating. Essentially, it looks like a giant open grid that we can just cross through to get to our destination, but any time that we get on certain parts of it, the paths in front of us will blow up. Or potentially, in a couple cases, the path behind us if we've screwed up and just basically backed up onto our own previous path. For the most part, you can find your way around this place by just asking yourself, okay, what's the longest possible route I could take? That's probably the correct route. It's not difficult, it's just kind of time-consuming. It does introduce us to another new facet of Battle Network 2's battle engine, though, which is field obstacles. Sometimes during these fights, where there are fire elemental viruses around to give us fire elemental chips, there will be a bomb on either side of the arena. If this bomb is hit with a fire elemental attack, it will explode, dealing huge damage to anything on that side of the arena. Most of the time, this shows up on your enemy's side, but you do need to watch it when it shows up on your side because that is a threat to you, and these viruses can trigger it if you're not being careful with where they are. Still, these encounters with objects add an interesting little twist to things. In the end, the last detonator is actually carried on the culprit himself, a hiker who'd been warning us to keep things pristine and everything, and it turns out maybe he's a little bit of an eco-terrorist. And on his person, we finally fight our boss, Quickman. Quickman's deal is that we have to counterattack him. He tends to just stand there waiting for us for a little bit, taunting us, but if we do any sort of attack at that point that isn't explicitly capable of breaking through armor, Quickman will actually just knock it aside and not even care. Even like Navi summons and stuff, he'll just block. Instead, we have to wait a couple seconds for him to start teleporting wildly. 
At which point, we can throw out certain attacks in hopes he just randomly walks into them, which actually works really well with shockwaves and stuff, or we can wait until he's done and throwing boomerang attacks directly at us, at which point we are given like a couple moments where he is vulnerable right after the attack to hit him. He's the first boss in this game that really punishes aggression. Like, we had Proto-Man who did this before in the previous game, but we didn't fight Proto-Man until nearly the end. This game's Quick Man comes at you very, very early, and he's not necessarily hard, but he can be dangerous and actually requires some strategy and thought to defeat. So, despite potentially blowing up a dam and possibly killing hundreds of thousands, our culprit just does a damn it, I'd have gotten away with it if it weren't for you scheming kids, we've disabled the bombs, we've disabled the detonators, and we all laugh it off and head home as the dude gets arrested. And that brings us to Chapter 3. In Chapter 3 of the game, Lan is reminded that he has a big homework project he needs to do, just kind of an open research thing. And after finding a pen pal letter attached to a balloon from a foreign country called Yumland, yes, really, it's called Yumland, Lan decides that, like, hey, aren't they known for their famous food? We should make friends, and then I can go visit that friend and I can eat all sorts of amazing food. So we start off this section by having to go and do another license exam. Again, this isn't a huge filler part. But this is something that starts to crop up. Listen, in Battle Network 1, one of the things I actually praised it for was its efficiency. It doesn't have a whole lot of unnecessary filler chunks. There's there's bits and pieces. There's spots like when we have to go run around to get the different keys to get to the different depths of the undernet. Like, that is a thing. But for the most part, Battle Network 1 is fairly efficient and fairly clean. Battle Network 2 has some distinctly filler sections, but at least these ones are still short. They're not all going to be. Fortunately, this license exam and the upcoming trip to Yamland does actually come interspersed with some new opportunities. For instance, we can fight our next optional boss, Gateman. This is a completely new boss who I believe was actually, like, designed by fans, the way that the old Mega Man Classic bosses were designed by fans. Also, while I usually don't mention the operators of these navvies specifically, Mr. Famous, who operates Gateman, is worth noting because he comes back in every future game, and he's also like the character avatar of one of the lead writers for the series, who even used to dress up as the dude when making like public appearances and stuff. So that's just kind of goofy and fun trivia for you. Anyway, Gateman's basic gimmick is opening up a giant gate that he pulls out of nowhere to either fire cannons or summon little soldiers that march after you. His attack pattern is fairly slow. It gets a little bit difficult towards the end of the fight when he will summon like an actual moving gate that will block some of your projectile attacks, but he's not too hard. We're going to want to remember to regularly come back here and beat him up as he gets stronger and stronger for his Navi chip, which is one of the most crucial in the game, and I will explain why when we get the rest of the reason why it's broken as hell. It also leads to us heading to a new corner of the net called Kotobuki Area. This is the first time that we actually get to see a different area of the net that has completely different visual styles to it, and it is very small and very contained. 
Its peaceful hub, the square, has a couple interesting features as well. For one, everybody there is a little bit weird and seems really happy for some reason, and it's kind of off-putting. For two, there's a special merchant there called the Bug Frag Merchant. Throughout this game, you can pick up in specific locations and mystery data things called Bug Fragments. We can turn these in with the merchant there for basically specialized rewards, including a couple chips that we cannot get any other way. Believe it or not, this dude is actually plot relevant. And third, you might not immediately notice it, but the peaceful square of Kotobuki, the center of it, is actually shaped like a giant skull, and I'm sure that doesn't mean anything. Neither does the fact that there's certain parts of Kotobuki area that are just completely inaccessible to us. Yeah, I'm sure it's probably fine. Anyway, after running around there and finishing up our A-license exam, the last one we have to take during the game, we do get to go to Yumland. Before I describe the events that happened in Yumland, I'm going to mention the next new innovation in Battle that Battle Network 2 added, Terrain. In Battle Network 1, Every single fight started on just basic panels on all sides, and certain attacks could crack panels, in which case they would break when somebody next stepped on them and then moved off, or they could be, you know, completely broken, completely removed, in which case they would be unavailable to stand on for a few seconds. In Battle Network 2, there are now actually a variety of new terrains that can emerge over the course of the game, many of which, which can be present at the start of battle, and many of which you can access to add to the field yourself via certain ships. Starting in Yumland, for instance, we see the grass panels. Grass panels cause wood elemental viruses to recharge HP when standing on them. However, anything standing on them that's hit with a fire attack causes that grass panel to burn away and also to cause the target to take twice the damage. Combo that on a wood virus and it's four times the damage, allowing for some amazing power. In Yumland, we see this terrain combined with random rocks at the start of battle and random chunks of cracked land that drastically start to shake up the sort of encounters we're getting into. And there are more terrains throughout the course of Battle Network 2 than that. There is icy terrain is really difficult to stop on. There is magnetic terrain that will pull you towards it from the panels above or below. And there's even more than that, and there's also fights in this game where parts of the basic battle grid are just missing and can never be made to exist, changing the shape of the arena and the considerations you have to make when fighting and attacking and stuff, it's all really cool and adds a lot of flavor to each individual area. This added terrain control aspect becomes a core part of the series moving forward. Again, just ways that they looked at things on Battle Network 1 and went, okay, but how can we capitalize on this? Anyway, at the heart of Yumland, we're just in time to witness Shadow Man, an assassin navvy hired by Gospel, finishing his effective genocide of all of Yumland's navvy population. Yeah, little bit of mood whiplash? Little bit of mood whiplash. Yes, it's played up as completely tragic, and then you're gonna have some whiplash right back when you realize it's just navvies. Don't get me wrong, a lot of people are communicated as like having a good friendship with their navvy and everything, and having to restore a backup sucks. But also, for most navvies, that's all they have to do is restore a backup. So... As much as this is played off as some terrifying grand tragedy, it just, I, yeah, put a pin in that thought. Especially because what we find out from the lone survivor of the attack is that apparently Shadow Man was planning on attacking Electopia next. But before we can escape to go tell people about this, we get attacked by our next boss, Cutman. Cutman is a simple boss with a very slow projectile, or basically like a close high damage scissor attack that will deal a bunch of damage if you don't get out of the way in time. 
The complexity of this fight comes from the fact that there is a rock in the center of your area that basically turns your path into kind of like a donut, and as the fight goes on, Cutman will eventually drop a moving, invincible scissor on your side of the field that will continuously and slowly rotate around the arena, forcing you to continue basically participating in that dance. That said, it's very easy to bait out his attacks, he's very slow, as long as you are ready for the fact that anytime he teleports directly in front of you, you need to be ready to move, you're gonna be fine. Once Cutman is down, we run off to our dad, tell him, like, hey, everybody's in danger, we need to do something, and dad says, like, okay, well, he's probably going after the mother computer, the maintenance system for the entire Electopian internet. So we'll buff up the defenses, and we're going to make you a super weapon. I need you to find this mysterious program that, um, long story short, involves us stealing Yumlandian national secrets. Something that then gets laughed off as a, well, I guess we'll have to apologize to them later, in order to get what's referred to as change.bat installed in Mega Man right in time for Shadow Man's attack on the mother computer. The Mother Computer is a pretty straightforward dungeon that is based on solving riddles in order to get the passwords that we need to cross over on the ground in order to continue through the dungeon. It's not too bad overall. It can help to have a like notepad open, though, because between the encounters that you'll get into, between talking to these NPCs, and some of these actually requiring you to like piece together information from multiple NPCs, it can sometimes be a little bit tricky. No massive reach riddles, but you're going to actually have to think about a couple of them. The most interesting part of the Mother Computer scenario is the, like, official net battlers that are fighting alongside you to defend the computer, who are basically going through their own, like, dramatic anime arc that you're just watching the human side of alone as they shout out the names of attacks and talk about noble sacrifices, and it's absolutely ridiculous. You'd think they're the main characters or something. It's it's kind of an actually, like, really funny little sequence because you're so used to that sort of thing being the normal stuff, but with characters that you're involved with, and now you're literally an outsider, and it just gives this scene, like, just this absolutely choice comedic taste to me. Oh, right, and the other important thing that gets introduced in the Mother Computer is style changes. In Battle Network 1, we didn't have a whole lot of actual customization of Mega Man. We could get power-ups for his buster, and choose which stats we raised first, although we would eventually raise them all, and we could get elemental armors that didn't really necessarily do much. In Battle Network 2, we still have HP memories and power-ups working the same, but as we travel through the Mother Computer, we will receive our style consisting of a mixture of an element and a battle element. The element that you get, wood, fire, water, or elec, is completely random. In fact, it was determined back when you started the game, apparently. You have no way to manipulate it. Don't worry about it. Each of these allows you to take advantage of terrain in a specific way. For instance, 
When I mentioned that grass heals woods viruses earlier, well, grass is a terrain also allows wood-style megamans to just stand on them and heal. Oh, and there's also the fact that every element comes with a different charged buster. These charged busters deal fixed damage based on what style they are, growing stronger the more you use that style rather than based off your power-ups. So the correct power-up choice for battle number two, by the way, is charge. Each of these busters has different properties, different effectiveness, like... You have like a long-reaching, powerful, but slow flamethrower and heat style, or you have the ability to throw out a very low-damage, paralyzing projectile in Elex style that you can then chain other attacks off of, which is why Elex style is usually considered the best. Now, this does mean you also now have an elemental weakness, so there may be times where you wish to just turn off your style, and you can do that, fortunately. Or you can change to a different style after like 150-ish battles or something like that. You'll receive another style change, and you can hold up to two styles at once. And anyway, that's the elemental half of a style change. There's also the style half, which is one of four that is determined by how you have actually been playing the game up to this point. If you have been constantly using your buster in fights up to this point, especially your uncharged buster, you will receive the gut style. Gut style massively amplifies your buster's damage. Not your charged buster, though, so it's kind of mediocre in many ways. But just the regular pellets from your buster now deal double damage, which can actually be incredibly powerful. If you max out your power, it's like 10 damage a button press, which is actually kind of batty. That's a lot of damage very fast if you know what you're doing. If you have been constantly using navi chips, like just constantly hunting them down, using them in all sorts of fights, you will receive the team style. The team style allows you to change how your folder is built. It allows you to have extra navi chips in your folder beyond the normal limit. Given that navi chips are very, very reliable, effectively instantaneous and undodgeable, and generally very powerful, this can be a big upgrade. If you have been using a lot of defensive chips, such as recoveries, barriers, or the guard chips from the Metars in the first area, like I did in this game, you will receive the shield style. Shield style starts every fight off with a barrier that blocks the first hit that would hit you, and also, with an input, allows you to generate a shield momentarily to block basically any attack coming your way. Finally, and most popularly, if you have been selecting tons of chips per turn and just doing all of your work with offensive chips in combo with one another, you will receive the custom style, which upgrades the number of chips you have to select from whenever you open the custom screen in battle from 5 to 7. This allows you to just, in general, select more synergistic and better selections of chips and is by far the preferred style because honestly that is an incredibly powerful benefit. Especially the further that you get into this game and the more that the game begins to emphasize um, program advances and like chip synergies and stuff. So yeah, that is the last major big new innovation in Battle Network 2 is the style system. It is literally tracking how you were playing in the game and rewards you with a style that effectively is supposed to reinforce how you want to play the game. And that's actually really cool. I think the only problem with it is the fact that it's like, oh yeah, if you wanted a different style, it takes 150 battles to get it. And you also don't have control over the element. Battle Network 2 styles are a really fun addition to the game that adds a lot of personality to Mega Man himself. And while styles themselves as a system will only stick around for about one more game, the series will continue to emphasize the customization and player control aspects of it in future iterations. Anyway, having gotten our style and having fought through the entire Mother Computer, we finally come face to face with Shadow Man. Fun fact! 
Shadow Man was in the first game. However, in the first game, he specifically filled the role of an optional boss that was only fightable in the post-game. I don't believe there was any story to it. You'd just fight him at a specific place in the Undernet once you'd beaten the game and had like a high enough level and stuff. This version is obviously a little bit toned down, but is still kind of dangerous. There's basically two halves to the fight. First off, he's going to make clones of himself that dance around on his side of the field, and you have a few seconds to attack him and the clones. Any clones that you don't dispel will duplicate his line attack that he then throws out, which can be straight up undodgeable if you didn't destroy any of the clones in time. In the second half of the fight, those clones begin to instead dance around your side of the field, blocking off your movements sometimes spontaneously, and even sometimes jumping right in front of you to do little slash attacks to throw you off. This will be combined with Shadowman continuing to attack you either with linear attacks or sometimes jumping up into the air out of range of your attacks and counterattacking with, like, shurikens on your location. The thing about the Shadowman fight is that, by and large, he doesn't deal a lot of damage. Most of his attacks are very, very weak for this point in the game, but it is very hard to keep him fully under control, especially because his duplicated shadows on your side of the field can be dispelled, but only if you are specifically using sword-based chips, which not every folder is. And that'll be a thing that starts happening a little more as we get into the game, is there are certain enemies in this game that can only be hurt by sword-based weapons, which means you kind of have to place some sword chips in your folders in this game. Either way, if you can avoid the death by a thousand cuts, we get to take down Shadow Man, the threat is over, we're fine. Of course, it's hard to pretend that Gospel's threat hasn't gone international. So in our next chapter, Lan and Chad are off to an international conference in Natopia. Land traveling alone via flight to a foreign country goes about as well as you would reasonably expect it to. Which is to say that this goes absolutely, impressively terrible very, very fast. Len gets separated from Mega Man at the airport and has an absolute fit until Chod bails him out with official net battler authority. He gets mugged for all of the zenny he has to spare. You're not getting it back, by the way. Hope you spent that. And all that's before he even lands in Natopia, where Lan accepts an offer for a drive out to the meeting place, which sounds great until it turns out the dude is actually a mugger and Lan literally gets his chips stolen from him. Oh, and then when they actually get to the hotel, naturally Lan has a fight with Mega Man, throws him aside, leaves and storms out, thinks, you know, a moment later, like, well, maybe actually I shouldn't be so hard on Mega Man, this isn't really his fault, comes back to Mega Man to find out Mega Man's been digitally mugged while he's been gone, and Lan's passport has now been stolen. Suffice to say, we have some pieces to pick back up. This is basically the start of the Natopia chapter, the first part of which involves a whole bunch of exploring Natopia's internet and the city in order to get our stuff back. In order to really kick it off, we have to defeat Thunderman, who, man, if your folder doesn't happen to match what Thunderman can do, you might be in for some trouble, to be honest, because you won't have a whole lot of opportunity to go fix up your folder. 
He's a constantly back row boss, and while his attacks are pretty much just entirely, oh, just target the space that you're currently on, it's the moving clouds that are dancing back and forth on each row and even invading your side of the field that make this boss difficult. These clouds will not just block your attacks and your projectiles, making it even harder to hit this back row boss, but also if you end up standing in their way for too long, they will attempt to electrocute you. So you have to be constantly on the move, and it's just Thunder Man isn't necessarily a dangerous boss most of the time, but you have to be very, very defensively active to weave through and find the opportunities to attack him. Beating up him lets us get onto the net and find some information and eventually beat up a few viruses to get our passport back, and then we find out that an operator by the name of Miss Millions, an older lady with uh, way too much money and way too much boredom and, and honestly way too many suggestive things to say to a ten-year-old, challenges us to a fight with her Navi Snake Man, who is the second boss we fight in this section. This is also a back row only boss, though this one is completely stationary, but if you stand in his row for more than a second, he'll duck back into his pot, because, you know, snake charmer, snakes in a pot, etc, etc. Also, just to rub it in, there's an open line of empty space right in front of him that makes it hard to get in really close, and disrupts things like shockwaves from hitting him as well. This boss just doesn't want to be hit by a lot of stuff. Fortunately, he is wood elemental, which means there's a number of fire chips that can deal double damage to him, and all of his attacks are very slow and very telegraphed. The actual trick is just figuring out which chips you have out of the limited selection that you have until you beat him and get back your folder can actually hurt him. Now, with all that done, we do get all of our chips back, we do have all of our goods, and we're ready to move on to the next section, but before you do, you want to make sure that you stop by Natopia's Net Dealer and pick up the Windstar and Fanstar chips. These incredibly unassuming chips are actually some of the game's most broken. Used individually, what these chips do is just drop a box obstacle on the field that will either push all enemies into the back row or draw all enemies into the front row. Now, this can be useful on itself. Pulling enemies forward so you can hit them with swords is actually, like, a legitimate strategy. However, for some dumb reason, and I don't think the game ever hints about this anywhere, if you draw and use a Wind, Fan, and Gateman chip in that order, and in order to do this, you have to get the star codes of these from this specific shop. You will have them turn into the Program Advance Gator. I didn't talk much about Program Advances in Battle Network 1 because they're kind of of limited usefulness in Battle Network 1. They're good, but kind of difficult to line up, even despite the fact that you can add so many redundant chips to a folder. This one, however, deserves some very special mention. Program Advances essentially take, if you make a hand that involves a specific series of chips, they will transform into some sort of super attack. The Gator Program Advance takes two utility chips and the Gateman Summon, which does anywhere from 120 to 200 damage, and that's like the kind of damage that a high-end chip in this game does. And the reason I'm specifying that damage range, Gator does nine aimed shots at your enemy while time is frozen so they cannot dodge, and every single one of those nine shots deals 100 base damage. You can add additional damage if you need it by using the attack plus chips, like attack plus 20 or attack plus 30, and yes, this does matter sometimes, but also the highest HP you will probably deal with over the course of the main game is about 1300, and this ability does nine 100 damage, and you can stack up to three copies of it by getting all three versions of Gateman's chip. The Gator Program Advance I had to bring up because it's almost legendary just how 
busted this thing is, and how much it completely overrides just about every other aspect of folder building during the main game in Battle Network 2. In fact, it almost overrides every other aspect of folder building during the post-game of Battle Network 2, except for like a couple very specific instances. If you know about this, and know how to get chips that support this, like full custom that instantly refreshes your gauge in fast gauge and you have custom styles so it's easier to draw into these. If you know how to manipulate and hunt down these, at this point the game's difficulty is gone. It's out the window. If you lose to a boss, all you need to do is retry a couple times until you draw Gator and you win. Anyway, freshly armed with our best, whether or not we choose to use the power of Gator, we're gonna go head to the meeting at Natopia Castle, which involves basically a whole bunch of high-rank officials, who warn that apparently Gospel has a plan of building some kind of super navy. But before we can get any further information, surprise, this whole thing might have actually been a trap, and every single person there falls into various pit traps and ends up down in the castle's dungeon. And we're going to have to play through segments of the dungeon to disable the various traps that, according to the phone calls we make and all the injured people we are coming across, um, might just be killing everybody. These dungeon segments aren't too bad, but they can be a little bit irritating. Essentially, during certain parts of them, we're going to have to play pseudo-Pac-Man with wandering programs. These programs are either a vampire, that immediately does 50 damage to you, a bandit, who steals away your zenny. This doesn't matter, because you can get the zenny back from a chest at the end, and you'll only permanently lose some money if you get caught by the bandit more than twice, or a zombie who will drag you back to basically the start of these little Pac-Man segments. And we're just trying to get through them, get a key, and continue on. The main thing to note is that because the vampire does damage, and frequently it's easiest just to tank this, this is maybe like one of the places in the game where having healing chips matters the most, and there isn't an opportunity to restock once you're down here, so good luck. In the end of this dungeon segment, we have not one, but two different bosses. First, only Lan and Chod have survived the trap so far, naturally leading to the point where Chod immediately thinks, well, that means Lan has to be the gospel spy, and Lan thinks the opposite too, so we get into a fight with Proto Man, who is noticeably upgraded from his original fight. He no longer just blocks random attacks you make, but will jump forward to counterattack you with slashes. Sometimes you can use this against him, but it is fairly quick. He has a couple different attacks he can choose to do too, including like large slash waves. It just makes him a little bit less predictable to find the openings where you can attack him compared to the first game. Afterwards, Chod beats himself up, still not quite believing that you're not the gospel spy, saying, um, I'm weak. If I could just have hated you with all my might. You know, I gotta talk about this at least a little bit, because I give X and Zero a lot of constant heck about this. And like, yeah, I know Lan's got this whole will-they-won't-they thing with Mile, but Chad kind of has vibes of like, I'm gonna try not to harp on it too much, because it's not like as thorough as X and Zero's thing going on, and it's kind of just that Chad is in that archetype of anime rival, where like there is the underlying sense of deeper passion and interest going on between two characters, but I'm still gonna point it out here, and there's probably gonna be moments in the future where I'm gonna reference it, because just like Lan and Mile have the will-they-won't-they, they, Lan and Chad kind of have that will-they-won't-they they friendship rivalry something else thing going on too. Either way, having just fought it out, but neither of them having actually been the gospel spy, we find out from Raoul, who we thought was dead, he's Thunderman's operator, by the way. God, I didn't even go into the whole thing where there's like this backstreet part of Natopia that is very clearly like American ghetto 
full of all the black and indigenous people who are downcast in society. And like, this game makes some decisions about what it wants to portray about not America and not Britain. But anyway, we find out that actually the princess who is visiting from another country, maybe she's actually the one responsible. So we chase her to the top of the castle and we eventually end up in a fight with Nightman. Nightman is a giant stationary target who is only fully vulnerable when attacking. If you try to attack him any other time, he's like stone bodied and will only take one damage at a time for most attacks. If you stay in his row, his attack will be very easy. He'll just throw a giant spiked ball that is easy to dodge, and like it'll block your attacks, but you can attack him after dodging it, and very, very simple. If you jump out of his row, he will still attack you, but it'll involve causing the ceiling to crumble in random locations to try to fall on you. Much more difficult to dodge. And this is really easy at first. However, once you take down about half of his health, he will jump forward a space, and while this puts him in range of more of your attacks, it also cracks every single panel on the battlefield, and you will very quickly find that you no longer have the room to dodge him, thanks to all of the panels falling away as you move off of them. If you can't rush him down during these last, like, 300 to 400 HP, you're actually going to have a very bad time with this fight. Anyway, the princess kind of scooby-doos herself into one of her own traps, gets caught. We find out that, like, Maybe she was working with Gospel to try to restore her country that had, like, fallen on hard times in recent years, but we all just kind of laugh it off because it turns out, like, oh yeah, everybody actually just got injured, not actually killed, even the guy who it was implied literally had a ceiling fall on him. You know, everything's good, so it's time to fly back home. Or it would be. But the final part of the Natopia chapter actually takes place on the flight back home, which you know immediately is about to be quite something when we end up actually first off on the plane, which means stuff is going to happen here because they wouldn't have bothered creating this whole scene, especially with the ability to walk around all the different cabins and stuff. And also, for maybe the first time in the series, we get kind of a genuine who's the culprit mystery when there are multiple new, unique NPCs on board. Up to this point, you can pretty much always tell who's going to be an NPC opponent with a special navy if they are hanging around in an area with a completely unique look, and they haven't done anything immediately obvious. In Battle Network 2, it remained true with, like, the hiker and Princess Pride, who was clearly the only new face who wasn't an NPC at the meeting, and all of that stuff. On the plane, we have a quiet kid who's constantly on his laptop, a weird entomologist, a pilot, the president of a big shot company, and all of them are going to be slightly adjacent, but not necessarily critical, except the entomologist, to this whole comedy of errors that goes on on board the ship, where it turns out maybe somebody brought a poisonous spider on board. And maybe resolving this incident somehow involves Land getting into a vaguely sexually lyriced rap battle in order to win a bottle of whiskey. I will not be offering further context at this time. After all of that nonsense, however, things actually get serious when the plane starts to fail and we have to jack into the plane in order to enter our next dungeon, and basically the final real dungeon before the end of the game. The airplane system is 
fairly lengthy, but also a fairly straightforward dungeon. Essentially, there's conveyor belt sections all throughout this that are magnetic rails that we have to find switches in each area of this place in order to disable the paths that go in specific directions so that we can reach the next switch, so that we can reach the next switch, so that we can leave the area and move on to the next. Rinse and repeat five times, it's not really that bad at all. In the end, the actual culprit was, you guessed it, the company CEO, who stole a major program from the plane in order to help complete the Super Navi, which a random important critical program on a random plane is incredibly in keeping with Battle Network 1's just like, hey, the fire super program was in Land's Oven, so I guess some things never change. The Navi that he fights us with is Magnet Man, who is a big, mostly back row boss again, because the game has loved those recently. For the most part, all of his attacks are very slow, like, magnet projectiles that turn to attack us, or just like really slow gravity balls, they are very, very easy to dodge, with maybe the exception of his double tackle, where he creates a duplicate of himself in your back row and like they slam together. And that can be painful, but it's mostly easy to dodge. I say mostly, because the middle row in this fight is magnet panels, which will constantly drag you back to it, meaning you have to do some kind of very quick dodges, not just left and right, but oftentimes vertically up and down and kind of around, while you're being constantly pulled back into this limited space. It wouldn't be that hard, but the magnet panels are a little bit irregular about how quickly they snap you back into that center row, which sometimes makes it feel like you should have been able to dodge around an attack and instead you get pulled back into it. Magnet Man is honestly kind of a bad fight, more just due to the inconsistency of the magnet panel mechanic, because otherwise he'd be an easy fight. Anyway, though, as usual, we survive the flight back home, the culprit gets caught, and we hit chapter 5, which sucks. Alright, those who have been through Battle Network 2 probably remember this segment. It begins with the environmental systems all over the world going crazy because the internet has literally been half-frozen. Chunks of ice blocks are now all over the internet, blocking everyone's ability to get everywhere. And this is apparently having some knock-on effects on systems that have been, like, preventing, like, big storms and earthquakes and stuff, and if not dealt with soon, we could be looking at global disaster. And this is the most garbage part of Battle Network 2. To clear these different blockades, which are four different colors, and eventually uncover the culprit, we're going to have to go literally all over the world on fetch quest after fetch quest. Most of them online, where we'll have to deal with random encounters if we don't carry a whole ton of sneak run subchips with us. These will constantly get in our way. We're going to be checked to see if we have enough money to buy certain things and enough of certain chips to trade away. Each piece of ice we do crack is going to have a forced virus encounter with some higher than normal stuff in them. Listen, to give an example of a single step that we take at one point, and this one's only given via clues and not direct instructions, you fly from Natopia, where you will be to do a certain part of this, back to Electopia, head to Okudin, jack into a grill, talk to a program, travel all the way to the depths of the Yumlands net via the Marine Harbor to find a program, then go back to Okudin, go back to the grill, to the NPC to get the key item you need, then finally fly back to Natopia, because that's the fastest way to get back to the Undernet. This is one step. Also, yes, I just mentioned the Undernet. This is the one good part of this, is that there is a couple new corners of the internet we do get to explore, but you're going to be sick 
sick of them very quickly, just because of how many times we have to go back and forth for them. The Undernet in Battle Network 1 was a term for the locked-off areas of the internet, basically the sixth-ish area onwards. Most of it was entirely optional and functioned as the post-game of Battle Network 1, and in Battle Network 2 it is kind of the same deal. We are prevented from getting to certain areas of the Undernet right now due to the ice, but it is its own distinct area this time. The Undernet looks um, kind of dangerous in this game. It has like a dark, oftentimes static background going on that just doesn't match with the bright aesthetics of the rest of the game. Also, weirdly, a lot of its visuals kind of look like the original Xbox, especially when you get the sections of the floor that glow green. Like, it is it is a perfect match for it, and it's kind of funny that the Xbox design was used as, like, the danger area of this game. It's cool to run around in, though we can't do everything in here right now. Even towards the end of this scenario, there are parts of the internet that will lock you off behind gates saying, hey, you must have these extra licenses, or you must meet certain conditions that we're going to be very, very vague about that you won't understand just yet, and I'll explain next episode. Of note, while we are running back and forth between just internet areas and our homeland and Utopia and all this stuff to do these fetch quests after fetch quests, we do also have a new boss fight with Heatman. Heatman, interestingly, is operated by the same dude who used to operate Fireman, who assures us he has turned over a new leaf, and at the very least, he's friendly in this game so we'll give him the benefit of the doubt for now. Heatman is kind of similar to Fireman, randomly teleporting very slow fire-based attacks. In this case, though, he has a couple new tricks up his sleeve, including temporarily going invincible by hiding in his lighter box and dropping magma panels onto your side of the field on rare occasion, which basically make it so that if you're not using a heat style, you either have to just avoid those panels for the rest of the fight, or go step on them and take some damage to clear them. Mostly, he's not too bad unless your style happens to be wood elemental, which naturally mine was, taking double damage in a fight really hurts. Anyway, eventually we will reach the end of this segment, and it takes like two hours of back and forth to do this. We do eventually get access to the restricted parts of Kotobuki that we were not able to go to earlier in the game. And surprise, it turns out the creepy cultish place shaped like a skull is actually hiding a base for Gospel, where we'll fight its commander, Freeze Man. Freeze Man caps off this segment by being kind of one of the most joke bosses in the series, honestly. Technically, he should be dangerous. The entire field is covered in ice. He hounds you down with wind attacks that move you around while throwing off slow-moving ice projectiles or causing icicles to fall from the ceiling or whatever. Like, technically, his attacks should be dangerous and tricky, but he is a water elemental boss who never moves, who is standing on ice panels, which means any electric elemental attack you do land on him is four times as powerful as normal, and every other attack in the game has no problem hitting him because he's completely stationary. I feel like I've frequently said, oh, this boss isn't that bad, but no, genuinely, Freeze Man is kind of a joke. Anyway, for how long it took to finish that, we finally have defeated Gospel. Or so we think. The next morning, there's duplicate gospel navvies showing up all over the internet, and the investigations very quickly discover that maybe it wasn't just Kotobuki's internet area that was gospel's base. Maybe it's the actual city of Kotobuki that had that internet area to begin with. Turns out, the entire place is suddenly spiking radiation ratings like nobody's business, supposedly 10,000 times the normal lethal doses. Maybe things are going a little bit crazy over there, and I don't know why none of the official net battlers were like, huh, that's weird. We're basically sent off on our own to the radioactive city of Kotobuki. Okay, to be fair, 
I do want to specify, Lan gets given a device that apparently is going to protect him from deadly levels of radiation. And so too will his friends have been given that. Though, why? I don't know. They're just going to show up and claim to be helping us, and that's just going to be that, and then Len's going to tell them to go away. I need to rant about this again. This game really likes to be all like, yeah, this was achieved by Lan and all of his super capable and helpful friends. Dex, Mile, and Yai do almost nothing through this entire game except to show up at the very end. To show up and claim to have solved an off-screen problem that did not exist a moment beforehand. Just so that the game can be like, oh yeah, Lan's friends are important and helpful. And like, it drives me nuts because in some of the games, some of these characters are actually like more involved in the action and actually helping out. And you can kind of actually buy the whole friendship is my power thing. And sometimes it's just like, no, you are forcing this in for the cheap emotional shonen drama. And you know it. Chud gets a little bit of a pass, though. I do have to give it to him for that because he is a perpetual element of this story. He does actually help out Lan with, like, dealing with certain crises. He literally helps Lan recover from all the nonsense that happened to him in Natopia. Like, that one I will buy. That one is actually present in the rest of the story. Anyway, I'm getting off track and I'm complaining because that is my, like, one negative about what otherwise is a really cool section of the game visually, because Kotobuki isn't just, like, radiation in a glowing green sense, no, it turns out it's radiation from, like, extreme electromagnetic interference, because so much power is being pumped into this one apartment building's, like, overflowing servers, that it's starting to distort reality and merge it with the cyberspace. Which, hey, I'm just saying, Star Force fans, this is, this is the first roots of Star Force right here. Conspiracy theory, etc, etc. Either way, our final dungeon isn't an evil lair this time, it's just an incredibly distorted apartment complex. Essentially, the internet for this area should be very, very straightforward to reach the switch that will allow the elevator to get to the top floor. However, because of all the interference and radiation, the internet's become completely scrambled. Teleporters will send you to the wrong areas, and in those wrong areas, you'll have to find keys, bring them back to the start of those areas, and plug them in to fix the connection. This place sets itself up to be this gigantic, confusing maze. It's actually largely not. The difficult part comes when there is one or two spots where you can accidentally reset the connection of an area too early, and then you have to go find the room number and jack into the server in that room in order to get back to the section you've now walked off. But if you can avoid doing that, which isn't too hard, but it is possible, if you can avoid doing that, you will be fine. At the end of this dungeon, we get a Mega Man classic. We have a gauntlet refight of the various bosses we fought throughout the game, back to back. It comes in two separate fights, with three bosses each, and they're still the original fights of the bosses again. But you do now have to display that you are basically capable of completely stomping through these fights. On the top floor of the building, after all this is done, we hit our point of no return. Here, we come face to face with Gospel's leader. 
a crazy glowing neon dude. He talks a lot about how he's innocent of all of Gospel's crimes, it's just dudes following his orders. And when Lan calls that one out by asking if the leaders ever talked to any of Gospel's victims, he just says everyone's just acting. He wouldn't be able to believe what they say. Everybody just puts up facades. It's almost touching on the way that everybody in the series uses navvies to communicate and kind of operates behind a layer of anonymity where they don't necessarily know each other, meeting through proxies and all that. But the game doesn't really take any time to dwell on that fact because his grand plan is almost complete. So we jack into Gospel server and go to fight the super navvy base. That's right. Mega Man's rival from 7 and onwards has been introduced to the series. Technically, he was actually in the first game as the final hidden opponent, but there was no story or no explanation behind who or what he was. In this one, it turns out he's some sort of super navvy that apparently was unfinished, it seems. Or maybe there's more to it than that, but we'll explore that in due time. Either way, for now, you know it's not quite the final boss because the normal boss music is playing. All he does is move slowly around and occasionally fire an attack down the line he's currently standing in. Give him enough time without depleting his 1000 HP, and he will eventually charge up and do an attack storm that just... It does like a ton of shots that are actually fairly quick and very hard to dodge between because they are very random. But the fact is, is he's so slow and so easy to parse what attacks are coming and you have so much power at this point that you can tell that this isn't base's full strength. Once we defeat base, we snap back to the real world where Gospel's leader is gone. Or rather, the giant glowy neon dude is gone. That was just a disguise for a kid. In fact, he's the silent kid from the plane who got hijacked. Yeah, it turns out he's the one who's been hiding behind a mask. But while Lan's all like, hey, what the hell, you're just a kid, why are you doing all of this? The kid, whose name, by the way, is Sean, gets pissed off and jacks up the server power and starts overcharging everything, exposing himself and Lan to extremely deadly levels of radiation that will have absolutely no long-lasting health consequences, because that's not the type of game this is. <laughs> Nonetheless, it does knock Lan unconscious, as in the cyber world, all that extra power on base actually makes him start to go berserk. Turns out this base is just a copy of something called the Super Navi that Sean has been attempting to replicate using the bug fragments that have been collected in Kotobuki. But that's really dangerous, because it's just bugs being meshed together. That's not going to create something deliberate, it's going to create something, something that typically would just do nothing, but... This is, you know, anime logic, so it's basically turning into a super-collected glitch mess, which turns base from a human form into the form of a giant, bug-glitch-ridden super-beast that looks like gospel. You know, classic base's dog. Unfortunately, with the radiation out of control, Lan has fallen unconscious, and in order to deal with this, Mega Man, or, well, straight-up acknowledged here as Hub, Lan's brother, and I kid you not, in an incredibly anime moment, puts his heart in sync with Lan so that Lan doesn't have to be conscious to operate him, because now he can operate him with his heart. And on that note of cheese, we reach our final boss battle. For comparison point, the life virus in the previous game had 1000 HP, had a regenerating shield, but frequently dropped it. Gospel has a whopping 2000 HP, and is immune to almost all forms of damage when not attacking you himself. This is not a barrier you can pierce through by dealing enough damage, he just literally deflects attacks when he's not actively attacking himself. You'll have to dodge a constant string of random bug fragments flying at you that can intercept your attacks. You'll have to counterattack gospel after various attacks like shockwaves and like a panel cracking homing attacks and giant drill slams. He can even temporarily
temporarily turn his head into copies of various bosses that you fought to execute certain attacks that they would have done. And towards the end of the fight, if you don't burst him down quickly, he has an attack where he tries to draw you close to him and then does a gigantic fire wave attack that will actually always be of the element that your current style is weak to, meaning that if you are taking advantage of a style in this fight, you will take like 400 damage from this attack because it's huge. 400 damage, by the way, when you probably have about 500-600 HP. <laughs> in comparison to the life virus, Gospel is a very legitimate challenge. He can be difficult even if you do have Gator set up multiple copies in your folder, because if you activate it at the wrong time, it's just not going to do anything to him. And with 2000 HP, that's going to take a couple different program advances to take him down. Still, with all that done, we finally get our denouement. Lan survives, somehow with no long-term health consequences despite the radiation supposedly well having gone above what he was protected from, never mind poor Sean, who was completely unprotected this whole time. While Sean is unconscious, Lan ends up basically picking through the kid's diary and finds out that, yeah, surprise, the kid had a really hard life that led him to this. His parents died in a plane crash, and while they had left him a strong inheritance, the world was eager to just ignore or exploit him. Cruel relatives looked to just use his inheritance, etc., etc. So he ended up withdrawing upon himself and taking advantage of the anonymity of the internet to make himself some friends, fell in with a bad crowd, and before he knew it, was literally terrorizing the world. And, um, listen, there are spots in Battle Network where the series is actually kind of prescient. Whether it's, like, dumb stuff, like the fact that the opening scenario of the first game is somebody basically hacked the house's oven and set it on fire remotely. Yeah, surprise, smart ovens are a thing with wireless access because that's safe. How many people have been locked out of their own houses because they chose, like, smart security systems that ended up losing internet connection and were no longer willing to verify and let anybody in? But of all the various things that I can kind of joke about that are still, like, messed up that were prescient, Sean's backstory is actually maybe one of the most legitimate in the series. Lonely kids being radicalized by the internet into doing terrible things is maybe one of the most real. That's the story of a lot of the worst parts of the internet, is just people who are looking for homes, finding people who are willing to give them an outlet for their hatred and their spite and their resentment. And the truth is, is Sean did a lot of bad stuff, and he's going to be serving a lot of time for his crimes, and when he wakes up, like, Lan makes that clear, like, hey, we can't just let you off for this. And while Sean basically asks Lan to just straight up kill him, Lan offers instead, once Sean's made up for his crimes, he'll be his first friend, an offer which causes Sean to break down into tears as we cue the ending. We get a final denouement as everybody goes camping. Mile randomly develops a possible competing romantic interest in Chad, literally just out of nowhere. It's just to play up the romantic tension and to match with the fact that in terms of Chad and Lan's relationship, it actually did develop and Chad now officially recognizes Lan as his rival. Lan gets to spend time with his dad for once, wherein Dr. Hikari kind of posits that, like, if Sean was being manipulated into all these acts in gospel, building the supernavi, there's no way he came up with the way to duplicate this fake base on his own. Somebody was responsible for this. But for now, Lan gets to spend time with his family, everyone's happy, until Lan realizes he never finished his homework. Cue studio audience laughter in the credits.
following the credits, we get one final scene. In an unknown corner of the internet, with a very visible World 3 motif in its visuals, Base wanders into screen, only to get utterly obliterated by the real Base teleporting in behind him, very angry that these copies have suddenly been made. And that's our hint about the post-game of Battle Network 2, something that I'm going to talk about another time, because I knew this was going to go long, and in terms of the raw recording, I am already an hour and 40 minutes in. So, here's my final thoughts about Battle Network 2 in the main game. First off, the number of improvements to this game was absolutely insane. I have stressed this, but Battle Network 2 is really all of the ideas of Battle Network 1's gameplay refined and expounded upon. Not just in terms of raw number of chips, though this game does have about like 50% more chips than the original game did, which means a lot more variety of attacks and tools, but also all the new stuff like terrains and modifier chips and styles and the visual touch-ups from the subtle to the glaringly massive of actually identifiable internet areas. Almost everything in Battle Network 2 is an improvement. This isn't to say there isn't the occasional problem. I did praise Battle Network 1 for its efficiency, Battle Network 2 had the entire Freeze Man segment, which completely sucks. If I could get a ROM hack that removed that from Battle Network 2, I would never play vanilla Battle Network 2 again. And unfortunately, I'm pretty sure every single Battle Network game from here on out is going to have at least some chunks of fillers, some pretty much just that bad. Yes, the Freeze Man section did technically involve, like, now you can fight Heat Man, and now you can go to the Undernet and explore it, and under Koto and stuff, and there were new chunks woven in there, but there was so much filler recreated in that section that it was just garbage. But that is the weak point in an otherwise exceptional game. I love Battle Network 2. I even love Battle Network 2 for its story. Battle Network honestly does not do great storytelling. Battle Network 1 is a whole lot of ridiculous scenarios with a honestly fairly comedic villain group in the World 3, and that's largely what this series is going to be about. It's going to have, like, the veneer of a significant threat. And this game tried to be dark with Gospel. It keeps establishing all these should-be-serious threats and incidents, and then we just kind of laugh them off a moment later. That darkness is only skin-deep. But Battle Network 2 actually does have some character development going on. Chod and Land's growing rivalry is actually, like, acknowledged and evolves over the course of the game. This is the first time in the series that Lan and Mega Man get into a fight. This is something that I feel like almost every single game from here is going to rehash. At least this time it did it first. And Sean is actually a really interesting idea for a character, and it's a shame we're only going to see him in, like, 1.5 more games. By the way, he got completely written out of the anime, and I'm forever really mad about this. Gospel's just a smokescreen for World 3 in the anime. That is bullshit. I'm using my one allocated curse word per episode on expressing the irritation I have with that. My point is, is this. Battle Network 2 on an analytical level is kind of a mess. It has an absolute disaster of a tonal dissonance problem. And like, I firmly believe that levity is important. Levity is how you connect to characters. It is how you come to care about the things that are happening to those characters. Battle Network 2 is a game that absolutely struggles with its tone. However, the end result is still really endearing to me. I'm going to laugh at anybody who says Battle Network 2 is a dark game. Like, no, it's not. It pretends to be. But in that pretending is something fun. Battle Network 2 is just overall, like, my favorite in the series. Or has historically been. It's been a very long time since I've replayed 3, 4, 5, and 6, and I'll get into my shaky history with those games when I get there. 
just like how I will get into the post-game of Battle Network 2 next time. What I will leave you with for today is the musical stylings of Battle Network 2. Because, yeah, the musical style is mostly the same as the original game. There's a slight overall shift towards something bouncier, and there is an about 30-ish tracks as opposed to the 20-ish of Battle Network 1, so there's a bit more musical variety, but it still does suffer somewhat from Battle Network 1's issues of being a long game with relatively short loops. That said, here's three highlight tracks. First, the real-world area for Kotobuki. The theme song for this final section definitely has a way stronger vibe than the previous games did, not just in terms of rising and fitting for something nearing the end and dramatic, but also packing a certain level of melancholy, which kind of fits. Essentially, this is Sean's home, and everything about this poor kid's life is crumbling. Next, I'd like to highlight the Undernet's theme, because the Undernet is the one part of the internet that actually gets its own theme in this game, and it will do that again in future games, which is a really nice touch for this basically being like an endgame strength area. And it's got this like really haunting, this is a dangerous place sort of melody going on to it. Interestingly, it has a very repetitive core like electronic baseline running through the whole thing as the main part that you're hearing, but unlike Mega Man Zero, where I complained about tracks being repetitive, this one is constantly shifting up the accompaniment to provide something that's just really good and really mood setting. Finally, we're going to continue a tradition that's probably going to stay a tradition, which is including the final boss track from each of these games, because all of the final boss tracks in these games are bangers. Gospel's boss fight is, like, just, this one's got that wonderful mix of ominous tension that keeps up melodic variants that sometimes gives way to something more heroic before it kicks back to dangerous, like, mmm, this is the good stuff. Alright, 
I have been podcasting for way too long, and the temperature has gone on way too high. Like I said, next time, I'm going to finish up Battle Network 2, and we'll also probably play Mega Man Gold Empire. I don't know if I'll be able to do, like, a full coverage of that game. I am, I am very much struggling to make heads or tails of this game. It's just not happening. So that'll be a fun next month. In the meantime... If you have any feedback, email what am I podcasting for at gmail.com. Twitter somehow still functional at what am I podcast for, as in using the number four. Head to waipf.podbean.com if you want the episode downloads directly or an RSS feed, or just follow on the podcast provider of your choice. Thanks for listening. I've been Garlisle, and just remember mm-hmm. Chicky Chick Baby, make me go kaboom. Can you digit, lady? Oh my love fire, coming to ya soon. No further context will be provided at this time.